to keep your Bibles open on that passage in James on page 1,213. We're going to be looking at that today. Let's just take a moment to still ourselves and to pray that God would speak to us through these scriptures. Father, may your mighty and powerful voice speak to us words of life and of hope this morning. Would you speak not to just our heads, but also to our hearts, that we may live a transformed life, following Jesus more closely. Grant us your spirit, we pray that we might be changed this morning by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are continuing with um, our new sermon series uh, in the letter of James. And uh, we began two weeks ago as I opened up and introduced the setting of James, um, the letter probably written in the AD 50s, so not terribly long after Jesus' death and resurrection, and written by his brother, James, described as a pillar of the church by Paul in Galatians. Uh, James, who was probably leader of the Christian community in Jerusalem, and writing to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed throughout the ancient Near East because of the persecution uh, after the death of Stephen the martyr, recorded in Acts 6. And in a way, it's great to spend time working through this letter, preaching on it, because the letter itself, uh, some scholars believe, is a series of little sermon notes or mini-sermons, mini-homilies, written to go to all these different dispersed Christians throughout the region to try and remind them how to live uh, an active Christian life. I introduced on the first week the idea that this is about a faith that flowers, not just seeds planted, but something which is revealed, something which is visible and active. And um, we began by thinking about trials and temptations. And last week, Morag spoke to us about uh, what voice we listen to, which voice will be the loudest in our lives. Will it be the voice of the world uh, dragging us its way, or will it be the voice of our Father? Uh, who, to whom do we listen, and how will we act uh, in accordance with the voices we hear? And this week, I want to think about the glorious image of Jesus Christ. That's a different heading from what our church Bibles give it. Our church Bibles give it the heading, favoritism forbidden, and we'll touch on that. But as I hope will become clear, I think this is really a passage about the glorious image of Jesus Christ and the consequence on how we view ourselves and how we view one another. So I want to begin with a question for you to consider. To whom do you compare yourself? To whom do you compare yourself? Think for a moment. Might be a friend, might be a neighbor, might be your mom or dad, might be an older sibling. To whom do you compare yourself? It's worth some consideration for each of us does compare ourselves to others for better or for worse. Do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes we compare ourselves to other people uh, in a way that makes us feel low. And like we're not doing very well because you know, oh, they're doing so much better than me. And uh, if only I could attain the lofty heights that that other person has attained. I wish I had what they had. I wish I could be like them. And we might actually feel quite 
bad about ourselves. I'll never live up to my father's expectations. My older sister, she's the one my father loves. If only I were more like her. Or another way that we might compare ourselves to another person is to slightly look down and say, my goodness, well, I know I'm not great, but at least I'm not that person. At least I'm not like him. At least I'm not like her. Why do we compare ourselves to people? I think it's to do with our self-image. I think it's to do with low self-esteem. I think it might be to do with anxiety about whether we are accepted, acceptable, whether we are lovable. I think that envy and self-pity come into it. Very often we look at one another and society wants to create a pecking order, a, a league table, if you like, a premiership down to a Vauxhall conference of the winners and losers of life's race, the haves and the have-nots, and we can be tempted to participate in that uh, pecking order, in that set of categorizations, in such a way that we end up envying those who have more than us and feeling as though maybe life dealt us a, a, a raw deal. A dud hand, we can succumb to self-pity. Or perhaps for some of us it might result in a bit of kind of uh, reinforcing our poor self-esteem through looking down on others, condescending to them. Well, if only they were a little bit more like me, life would go much more smoothly for them. Often comparison is used to run people down. It's often used in a way that's destructive. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not like you. Or you. It's very easy to fall into that pattern, isn't it? Even if we know that it's not the right attitude to have. It's very, very seductive and tempting. That's actually why the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we heard at the beginning is still so relevant to us today. Because it's so easy to find ourselves standing in the place of the Pharisee who, anxious about whether or not his own tithes and offerings are acceptable, wants to bolster himself and hold up his report card before God and say, I've got A stars all the way, I must be doing okay, and I'm certainly doing better than him. When who does God say is justified before God? It's the tax collector who stands here and says, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. I need your grace. when we compare ourselves to one another, ultimately, it robs us of our joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. And uh, one antidote to comparison, to envy, to self-pity, is to practice the art of thankfulness. Uh, It's not for nothing that the New Testament exhorts us to give thanks in all circumstances, to be thankful always. With thanksgiving, present your prayers and your petitions. Thankfulness is so important in the Christian life. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Thanksgiving is the key that unlocks the door to the presence of God. Thanksgiving helps us to uh, repel and dispel those corrosive elements of envy and self-pity. And comparison, this subject of comparison, is also at the root of what James is tackling in our passage today. I want to dig into the first half of this scripture a little more. At the heart of things seems to be a confusion in the congregation to whom James is writing about two things. Firstly, where our help comes from, and secondly, what true glory looks like. 
Look at verses 2 through 4. I'll read them again for you. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The congregation seemed to think that riches and power, this rich man who comes in, are a sign of glory and blessing. They seem to think that they may have some advantage by giving special attention to the rich man. Now look, it would be easy for us to sneer at them to look down on them for such obviously unchristian behavior. Come on, didn't they know better? Hadn't they read the New Testament? No. But we may be all too easily tempted in the same direction ourselves. And it's helpful to remember this congregation that James is writing to, uh, these congregations have suffered persecution and are evidently struggling with trials and temptations. We know this because James has written to them already in chapter 1 to talk about how they persevere through trials and temptations. When you're in a hole, it's even more tempting to look to your own advantage from someone that you think could help you. When you're down a pit, you look for someone with a ladder or a rope, someone who can help you out. When you're struggling in life, you think maybe there'll be somebody who will be able to lend you a hand, who will be able to change your situation. Imagine a contemporary situation. Imagine, if you will, that this church, our church, is struggling to pay its bills. Maybe we've got a leaking roof that we've not been able to repair. Maybe the boiler is broken and we don't have the funding in place for the youth worker next year. All realistic scenarios that churches in our day up and down the country face. Well, into this mix walks an apparently wealthy city professional, maybe a, a, you know, a young professional woman, a lawyer, a banker, perhaps... And many a vicar or pastor in our own day has struggled with the temptation to give them special treatment in the hope that they'll ask for the standing order form that they will give generously. It's a real and live temptation. Many a PCC, many a board of elders has sat and had that discussion saying, we just need to pray for more people with money to come to our church so we can do the things that we want to do. If only more of the young, upwardly mobile, have it, all kind of people were here. So we mustn't sneer at this community for what they were doing because it's a temptation to which any of us may succumb. But to show favoritism to the wealthy guest is to put our trust in the wrong place. I said, first of all, that this confusion in the congregation is about two things. Who do we trust? Where does our help come from? And what does true glory like? So to, put our, to show favoritism to the wealthy guest is to get that first bit wrong, to put our trust in the wrong place. Because every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God, from heaven above. We know this because James wrote it in the last chapter. Our trust for our needs must be firmly rooted in him. Or else we make whatever else that we trust a false god, an idol. So that's the first confusion in the congregation. Where do they place their hope? Where do they place their trust? The second confusion in the congregation um, seems to be about the image and the appearance of true glory. What does true glory look like? What does 
success, satisfaction, abundance look like? Well, James reminds them at the very beginning of this chapter that Jesus Christ is the glorious one. My brothers and sisters, he says in verse 1, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Another translation puts it this way. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? If you're, if you're caught up in this way of viewing the world and viewing one another, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is glorious? Jesus is glorious. That is to say, he is wonderful and awesome to behold. His image, his appearance is glorious. And what does the glory of God in Jesus Christ look like? It looks like this. It's the all-powerful God submitting himself to death on the cross in our place. The glory of God is seen at Easter in the humility of the one who gives his life as a ransom for many, the one who is willing to be subject even to death in our place. Glory, God's glory, has a downward trajectory. It doesn't seek to puff up or assert, but rather to serve. The glory of God at the end of the Bible is seen in the image of the one who appears as a lamb on the throne, a lamb that was slain. The final uh, image of God in all his power and majesty and sovereignty is of the one who gave himself in our place. This is the glorious image of Christ that we are to behold, upon which we are to gaze, and to which we are to be conformed, transformed. We're supposed to become more like this. That's the fate of our human lives, is to become more like Jesus Christ. So long as we are directed towards conformity to Christ, we will find life and hope and love. We will find peace and joy. Where we turn our lives away from conformity to Christ and seek to assert for ourselves some other worldly image of glory or abundance or satisfaction, we will find only ruin. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, we who with unveiled faces we have beheld, that is to say, unveiled. We no longer, uh, we, we no longer see uh, obliquely. We, we now see God in Jesus. We who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Every human person, woman, child, man, is made in this glorious image. When God says, let us make man and woman in our image, it is the image of Christ, the one true perfect human that, we, that he is basing us on. To some extent or another, every single man, woman, and child reflects the image of God in Christ. Well, here we've got to do a thought experiment. Let's have our next screen up. I've got for you a, a, a biker, a banker, a hoodie, and a hipster. I like alliteration, as some of you know. If they wandered into our church today, how would we feel? 
how would we feel when we beheld their image, when we saw them? To whom would we show favoritism? Would we show partiality one way or the other? Perhaps we would be hoping for the coolness of the hipster or the money of the banker, but not the counterculturalness of the biker or the perceived anger of the hoodie. We all make judgments all the time. The mark for us of our ever-increasing conformity to Christ is that we're willing to look beyond those initial judgments and look to see how Christ is revealed to us in each person. This has been powerfully played out this week in the news. So my next slide up. Here was a news report on the, um, on, the, on the Daily Mash website, because sometimes you just need satire. The headline is this, Britain mystified more seven-year-old children haven't made unaccompanied two-and-a-half-thousand-mile journey from Syria. Millions of Britons are surprised at how few seven-year-old refugees have journeyed alone across the whole of Europe. The admittance of a handful of child refugees to the UK has seen widespread complaints that they are not small girls wearing artfully tattered clothing and clutching a one-eyed teddy bear. Francesca Johnson from Colchester said, My ideal refugee would be a girl aged between four and seven who lost her parents to the monsters of ISIS, not Assad's forces. That makes it too ambiguous. She'd have crossed the Mediterranean in attire and struggled through European countries filled with cruel stereotypes to reach the beacon of kindness and fair play that is Britain but wouldn't have aged in the face and would still have lovely pigtails. I'd accept boys, but with an upper limit of three years old because they're not cute after that and they get into mischief, meaning terrorism. Roy Hobbs from Darlington agrees. I tell you what, some of these 5,000 civilians fleeing the Battle of Mosul look over 18 to me. I'll need a bloody good explanation of why they didn't stay in that war zone because they want to claim benefits, I bet. Satire but painfully close to some of the reactions that we've seen this week. There's um, one of the refugees arriving at Luna House. Sorry, go back, let's stay on that image. Uh, in the yellow coat. What do you think of when you look at him? What's his story? Do you know? Are you in a position to judge? It was um, great to see Citizens UK and many other groups mobilising to go down and uh, be part of this refugees' welcome action, to go and stand at Luna House, a place so often of oppression, bureaucracy and despair and shattered dreams, futility, and to go uh, with balloons and tea and coffee and banners and clapping and shouting and cheering and welcoming people. It doesn't matter whether refugees are 16 or 18. They're humans, made in the image of Christ. They've suffered horrendous experiences in war zones, traveled through great adversity, and they need to be loved and welcomed and honored, the image of Christ honored in them. How do we make judgments that will not show favoritism or fear? It all comes back to our fundamental understanding of God's glorious image, in which each of us is made. I want to tell you a story about Michelangelo's sculpture, the Pieta, famous sculpture. It's uh, held in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City and is one of the most visited sculptures uh, of that place. 
It was made by Michelangelo when he was just 24 years old, carved from a large block of marble. And on a Sunday morning in 1972, as people were there uh, finishing a service, gathering in the chapel, looking at this statue, a man carrying a hammer jumped over the rail and struck a number of blows before a guard was able to restrain him. Police later announced that the attacker was uh, named Laszlo Toth. He was a 34-year-old um, uh, Australian citizen, the son of Hungarian immigrants, and he was suffering from um, mental health problems and was actually sectioned, I think re rehabilitated afterwards. But the statue was broken into many pieces. The arm was ripped off, fingers of hands, cheeks broken. Some 50 large marble fragments lay on the floor, plus 150 smaller ones and countless even smaller pieces. A team began to gather up those fragments, those shards, those broken pieces of this masterpiece and gather them together and began the work painstakingly of repairing and restoring the sculpture. Tragically, some bystanders had picked up a few pieces of marble and taken them away as souvenirs. Uh, and so there was a little bit of a recovery uh, adventure to go and find the things that had been and taken away. Fortunately, some people, when they realized what they had done, sent them back to uh, the archaeology team. Let me read a little extract from this story. For more than four months, the team worked long hours in the laboratory. One of the experts commented later, we felt just as though we were at the bedside of a human being who was very ill and whom we loved very dearly. After all the experiments and analyses had been finished, it was time to start work on the actual statue. On the 7th of October, the restoration team set up their workshop in the Pieta Chapel, equipped with all the materials and tools, including microscopes and dentist drills. The place looked like an operation room. And after two years of work, the statue was finally restored and unveiled to the public again. Why do I tell you that story? This sculpture was a masterpiece of Michelangelo. Attacked, ravaged, broken, and restored. You are God's masterpiece. You are made in his precious image. But each of us has been attacked, ravaged, and broken by sin. And Jesus Christ is painstakingly restoring us in his image. Painstakingly taking every broken fragment of our lives and putting them back together so that we might once again conform to his glorious image. And he's doing that not just for you, but he's doing that for every man, woman, and child in the world. And our part, if you like, we are called to be like that team of restoration sculptors and workers working with Christ to painstakingly put his image back together in everybody that we encounter. All those who are broken are being healed and restored to the true glory which is theirs in Jesus Christ. Well, when all this is said and done, James just issues two commands in relation to this. And they're founded upon the understanding of the glorious image and they're directed towards its restoration in women and men. So he says, verse 8, fulfill the royal law by which he means the kingly law, the, the law of Jesus. 
that you love your neighbor as yourself. For you are made in his image, and so is your neighbor. You are a broken masterpiece being painstakingly restored. So is your neighbor. You see the warning in verse 9. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you show favoritism, if you show partiality, if you make these judgments, you are undermining your capacity to love your neighbor as yourself. And the second command he issues, verse 12, is speak and act in a way that reflects the freedom that's given to you. You have been you are being judged by a new law, the law of life, the law of liberty, the law that brings freedom. Speak and act in a way that reflects it so that you honor and restore the image of Christ in others. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Powerful conclusion. Powerful conclusion for the church to whom James wrote. A powerful conclusion for us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When you know that you're accepted in Jesus and that God, our Father, looks on you just the way that he looks on Christ as a glorious human being, two things will result. First of all, you'll have no more need to compare yourself to others. For our sense of self-worth is not defined by where we stand in the pecking order of the world, but rather by God's love for us. And secondly, we can abandon favoritism, partiality, uh, unfair judgments, for we no longer need to bask in the reflective glory of other people when we stand secure in the actual glory of Christ. Our glorious image is being painstakingly restored by the Holy Spirit of God whom he has given to us, just like Michelangelo's masterpiece. Little by little, piece by piece, Jesus is delicately and carefully restoring in us the image of of his glory. Now that's good news. That's good news to share. Amen? Should we stand and pray?